So today I happened to, I was hanging out online, one of those things that you aren't doing so much right now, and came across this wonderful picture and I thought, oh, this person must, must have been on a retreat. And it shows, it's a cartoon, and it shows a patient lying there in a hospital bed and his head is all bandaged up and the doctor is standing next to the bed and the doctor has one of those little toy monkeys with the symbols that you can wind up, you know, and it'll run around and go bang, 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 and probably squeak a few times. And the doctor is saying, that, saying to the patient, we found this in your brain. I thought it was the perfect cartoon for people who have been sitting either a week or, you know, five weeks at this point. It probably resonates a little bit with your own mind. So the other night when Heather started her talk, there was that wonderful moment when she found the ant crawling up her leg and she said, oh, honey. And then she talked about how the ant was crawling up her leg and then down the other leg and um, called it honey several times, actually. And, you know, that's one of the lovely things here on retreat is watching as many of you actually take such care of the little beings that come in here and they get lifted up in various contraptions and very carefully carried outside. And, you know, we, we, you, meet these beings with such friendliness. It's like each one of you is saying to each one of them, oh, honey. And we all know, um, after this much sitting and in our practice, all of the ways in which we relentlessly judge and criticize ourselves. And we know how rarely we meet our own experience with anything even close to that, oh honey. And when Winnie talked the other night, when she gave the first talk on metta, um, she told that lovely story of the monks in the time of the Buddha, finding the best place for practice, you know, the spirit rock of their time, probably. And then they discovered, you know, something was really wrong. It was haunted, they thought, maybe. And the, those devas who had been misplaced were making all those strange noises and filling the monks with all kinds of fear. So when we spend long periods of time doing practice, we often see that we're not very friendly with ourselves or with our own experience. Sometimes it feels as though the retreat is haunted even, you know, that we're followed by ghosts of the past or difficulties that we didn't expect. And here you are, you're in this ideal retreat center and you're caught in the darkness of your own mind. And we are sometimes filled with fear and aversion. So it's really important to remember as we do our practice together 
that all of the practices we do, Vipassana practice and metta practice, these are purification practices as well as, in the case of Vipassana, wisdom practice and in the case of metta, loving-kindness practice. And what that means is your stuff comes up, right? Jack Cornfield used to like to say, you know, you think you've come to the ideal retreat center, but really you've come to the garbage dump. Um, so there we are with our stuff. And of course, when we do metta practice, uh, even more comes up because metta will bring up all of those places where we don't feel friendly and we don't have goodwill and we aren't kind. So the first thing I want to do tonight as we consider metta for the second time, I, want, I particularly want to look at how we work with fear and how we can begin to develop a heart that's big enough to hold that fear and to comfort ourselves so that we can be strong enough to move through it. Every one of us is afraid. I'm afraid. Sometimes you're afraid. We're all afraid. And we're often actually kind of embarrassed to admit it. You know, it's not a very cool thing to to be afraid. And there's lots of fear in the world out there and our lives about our work and our relationships and the world itself. And um, there's fear that comes up here, isn't there? You know, sometimes it's the, it's simple, you know, it's that ache in your back that just won't go away and then it moves around a little and pretty soon the mind goes, oh, Maybe this is really bad. You know, maybe it's I've got cancer or my vertebrae are deteriorating or I'm going to need surgery or, or maybe the mind just, it just feels different sometimes from the way that it normally feels. And you begin to think, is this okay? You know, is this what the mind or the mind heart is supposed to feel like? Or sometimes we're sitting there and and there's huge emotions that come up, you know, volcanic rage, just huge rage, or deep, deep grief and loss, or utter terror, and it seems, it's scary. How can we possibly hold this emotion? Or sometimes it's, it's smaller than that. Sometimes it's just the fears that are those, those little anxieties. Can they hear me swallowing, you know? <laughs> What about my stomach? It's growling and everybody around me, you know, must be really offended about my growling stomach or have I coughed or sneezed too much? Or sometimes as we're sitting here, because it's quiet and there's a lot of talk about impermanence, the big fear comes up, the one that is the fear of death itself. Our Zen friends call it the great matter. And as we slow down in our less busy and talk a lot about impermanence, we can suddenly take it in. It's true. It's really true. I'm going to die. I am going to die. Maybe even soon. So we're all afraid. And it's pervasive. And it's really, really important to become a student of fear. To notice what it is and to observe its patterns so that we can work with it skillfully. So 
there's some things to notice. Fear is just about never about now. It's not about now. It's always in the future. You know, if the bear has you by the arm, the fear, you're coping with that. You know, you're pulling and doing whatever you have to do. And the fear is, oh, what if he gets my head? You know, because that could be really bad, you know. Uh, be really bad. It's interesting, you know, I live, I live on a volcano. I live on the most active volcano in the planet, actually. Kilauea. It's a great place to live. Beautiful, really interesting. Lots of artists and scientists. But every now and then the thought goes through, but it's a volcano. What if? What if? You know, what if it goes next week into one of its explosive cycles? They now know that it has them. You know, so in the future, right now it's fine. You know, we, we've thought it through. We, we think we're pretty safe. But out there in the future, maybe, and the fear comes through. Now is usually manageable. It may not be pleasant. It might even be really awful. But we're doing what we can to cope. And we also begin to see it's constantly changing. And fear focuses on the concrete sense of self. You know, on me and on mine. And it's often very attached to a particular outcome. And there's lots of clinging involved. When we're afraid, we often contract in our hearts and minds and bodies. Sometimes it feels like we can't breathe. Or sometimes in trying to breathe, we hyperventilate. And we feel like we're trapped and we can't move. So I thought some as I was writing this today about those monks, you know, those poor monks. They were probably pretty scared, you know, hearing all those eerie noises that the Davis were making because I imagine Davis are probably pretty clever and have some pretty good ideas about how to scare human beings. And maybe they got, you know, really quite paralyzed on their cushions, poor fellows. And poor us caught in our own fear. And I thought, well, maybe even the Buddha said probably the monkish equivalent of, oh, honey, to those poor monks, you know? So they and we are good students, and one of the things that we're often told when something like this happens is, well, be mindful of it, you know, explore this fear. And we do, you know, and we begin to notice some of the features that I just mentioned about how it's in the future. We might notice that it comes in waves, you know, it's not very often that fear is just there in some monolithic thing. It, it, it can come and then it subsides for a while and then it comes again. And we might even begin to see that um, it's a conditioned mind state, you know, it arises out of our past experience or, or out of habitual thought patterns um, or about um, the experiences of other people besides ourselves. And we see that it's a mind state. Fear is a mind state. And we can observe it and note it and decide if we need to believe it. So this last thing is really, really important because, are you ready for this? It's a really good thing to know. Not everything the mind produces is to be believed. 
In fact, maybe even very little of what the mind produces is to be believed. It is just, those thoughts are just conditioned arisings from the mind. On my altar at home, I have a Buddha. It's um, the same design as the one that's up at Abhayagiri. And the Buddha has the Abhaya Mudra. His hand is out like this. And the Abhaya Mudra is the fear not mudra. But of course, it's interesting, isn't it? Because in our culture, in our Western American culture, this means stop. And I love it that it means both fear not and it means stop. Because it reminds me that when that fear comes up, what I need to do is stop. Stop and not panic. And when we stop, then we begin to notice the elements of fear and the confusion and the sense of danger and vulnerability. And when there is confusion and a sense of danger and vulnerability, what's often true is that we react, right? We react rather than respond. It's really hard not to do that, but unfortunately, all too frequently, it makes things a lot worse instead of better. So stop. What is true in this moment? Sometimes the danger is real, isn't it? Sometimes there really are things that could hurt us. The truck is barreling down on us, or the ice is too thin, and we have to act, and we have to do it quickly. Or we realize that that pain that we've been making up stories about actually does seem to be something that is real and consistent, and we should tend to it. So we train in mindfulness practice in seeing clearly, and we learn to know our bodies and our hearts and our minds, and we see that some thoughts are useful and others are not. And we see that we can recognize the state of fear and that there is time for a considered response. In fact, it's interesting, neurologists tell us that when we're in mortal danger, there's actually kind of an expanded sense of time when we have, um, seems like we have a little more time to see what we need to do. But in the story of the monks, you know, that wonderful story, the Buddha didn't just give them the Satipatthana Sutta again. You know, he didn't say, okay, guys, just be mindful, you'll be fine. You know, he gave them the Metta Sutta. And he suggested that they would be most helped in their fear by working with opening the heart and by the practice of friendliness and goodwill towards all beings. You know, he gave them the practice of sending goodwill, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, the medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. So this was the practice that he gave them. And teaching them that in order to have the steadiness that we need, we need an open, roomy, spacious heart, one that does not judge our fear and one that will listen. We're invited, the image in the sutta is of a mother, you know, just as a mother 
um, holds her child, you know, and we're invited to hold ourselves as uh, a mother would hold a child. So, you know, we talked somewhere a few nights ago, I forget exactly where, you know, the, the warm, warm bath metta, you know, you can take the warm bath or, um, or you can put on a nightlight or uh, these little things that are just kind and friendly to us in our fear. Recently when I was sick, I was really sick one night, and I did just that. I put the nightlight on. I thought, this is pretty silly. I'm grown up. I don't need a nightlight. But then, you know, it felt really comforting in that night of being so sick. So the Buddha suggests that we can train the heart, that we can create the conditioning for other mind states that might be more helpful and way more supportive and way more wholesome than fear. So we know that volitional actions have consequences, and we know that the wise use of energy um, is to create and sustain wholesome mind states and to discourage or to dispel the unwholesome ones. This is what's not what's called wise efforts. And in the work that we're doing with the Brahma Viharas, there are four trainings to develop wholesome mind states. So we develop metta, kindness and friendliness, goodwill, karuna, compassion, mudita, sympathetic joy, the ability to, sh- to enjoy our own joy and the happiness of others, and upekka, equanimity. <clears throat> so we'll be working with all of those. The two-month people have already been through that whole set of teachings once and we'll go through it again while we're here. So the Buddha's gift to those scared monks, the gift of metta, was the practice of developing the heart of goodwill and of kindness for all things. I am always taken every time I say the sutta or chant it, that phrase, you know, omitting none, omitting none. So it's the practice of developing a very vast and big heart. Here's a reading about <clears throat> Deepama, who is one of the great Vipassana teachers that many of the older teachers um, studied with. She died in the early 1990s. What is your heart like? That's what they wanted to know. They brought in someone who had just died. They proceeded to open up her heart. You wouldn't believe what was in there. You wouldn't believe it. White people, black people, atheists, rich people, poor people, drunkards, prostitutes, priests, politicians, children, judges, baseball players, cranks, and me, even me. How did I get there? Is that what I will be like when I die? When they open up my heart, what will they find? So the sutta starts out by saying, this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness. And then it's followed by lots of description about what this might look like, living carefully and mindfully, unburdened with duties, spreading kindness throughout the world to all beings. Skill implies training. I love it that he used the word skill. So here, we're taking this training on. And we begin, you know, working 
training first with loving kindness and goodwill towards ourselves, and then beginning to go out with easier beings first and the more difficult ones later. You got to the difficult being this afternoon, I believe. And I know that last night, Oren talked in his talk, <clears throat> he quoted the line for the first lines from the Dhammapada. I don't know which translation he used, but this is the one that I use. All experienced is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. And then it goes on to say, speak or act with a peaceful mind, and happiness follows like a never-departing shadow. So telling us how important, how incredibly important it is to train our minds so that then we can live in happiness. It's also important to say about the metta training, this is not easy. It is not an easy training. This is like training for a marathon, you know, maybe even one of those huge marathons where they run through the mountains for days at a time. It's not training to just run a few laps back and forth, you know, it's a really big deal. And in this training, it's also important to say that we will not always feel kind or sweet or even friendly. We won't yet have goodwill. You may be doing metta practice with your teeth gritted because it's going to feel so hard to do it. But we train anyway. You do it anyway. You work with the practice anyway. We keep planting seeds of goodwill and friendliness. We keep creating the intention for the mind to go in the direction of kindness and friendliness and goodwill. As a little bit of a side, but not much, as part of this, I cannot recommend enough doing the practice of metta for yourself. And I say this because <clears throat> some years ago I was teaching um, a class when I was still teaching in Santa Cruz and we were studying metta for a while and I decided that, and I, I actually can't tell you why I decided this, that I would take on, so we were all to take on the practice for the six months we were going to be doing this, I decided I would do nothing but metta for myself as my meditation practice for the entire six months. No vipassana, no anything else, just metta and only metta for myself. And it felt really strange and kind of selfish, actually. What was I doing, you know, choosing to do metta for myself? And I cannot tell you how wonderful it was and how amazing it was to discover, of course you can't do metta just for yourself after a while, it opens out to everyone else anyway. And it was a profound shift in my practice. So I tell you this hoping that maybe a few of you will pick up that thread and try it out for a while. It's also really important to know, and I think you do know this, that you can shape it to meet your own needs. You know, you can use your own phrases, you can have your own way of doing it, you can use phrases, you can radiate metta, there's a number of ways to do it. Some people, I know somebody who, like, You're, I'm just fine the way I am. That was her metta phrase. Um, you could, I even had visions of us all sitting there with our eyes closed going, oh, honey, oh, honey. 
and just holding ourselves with that kind of sweetness. So some of mine are things like, may I be peaceful and may I be protected from harm, may I be healthy, may I be contented, I like contented better than happy for some reason, may I find freedom in each moment, there have been times when I've used, may I be free from the prison of my stories, there's so many different ways to use the phrases. And this is, is all intended to create this vast heart, this vast heart of the bodhisattva, this vast heart that every time it looks at another being, it sees the potential for waking up and for growth. It's also really important to remember that um, this friendly and kind goodwill is not wimpy. This is not a mushy, wimpy, just feel-good practice. It can be quite ferocious. It can be really ferocious. So, you know, if you think of what it is to parent a young child, a two-year-old, for example, sometimes the kindest thing you can do is grab that little being by the scruff of his or her neck and pull them out of the way of harm and get really upset with them because they've created a dangerous situation. Or I have a grandson <clears throat> who's 14. <laughs> so he's moving into, you know, full, full tilt boogie adolescence. And so, you know, sometimes the kindest things his parents can do for him is to say, no, you can't do this. And, you know, it doesn't please him and it doesn't feel good to anybody, but it is an act of kindness. One of my favorite stories from Buddhist literature, is one of the stories of the Buddha from uh, during the time when he was in his lifetimes before being the Buddha. And in this particular story, the Buddha was um, on a boat traveling across a big body of water, ferry boat, there were a number of people and the captain of the boat was a pretty evil guy. And the Buddha, because he was on his way to being a Buddha and he could sort of sense what was going on in the minds of, mind of this being, realized that the captain had a plot to kill all those people. So, what to do? So the Buddha, in the story, the Bodhisattva, killed the sea captain. Now this is an, an interesting story. I heard this story actually the first time from the Dalai Lama. And, um, and so, you know, what was true was of course the, the Buddha wanted to save, the Bodhisattva wanted to save all the people who would have otherwise died. So that was true. It's also true that he did it knowing that he was taking on the karma of killing another being. That's a very important point actually. And he also did it to protect the sea captain from the karma of killing all those people. So he did it as an act of kindness. Now the Dalai Lama said to us, now, remember that this was the, was the bodhisattva on his way to being the Buddha. So unless you think you're a bodhisattva on the way to being the Buddha, or in fact, unless you know that you are, you probably shouldn't try this one out. But I like it because it points out to this way that kindness sometimes and goodwill sometimes doesn't look quite um, as sweet as 
we would want it to look. One, one important aspect of metta <clears throat> is the aspect of forgiveness. I talked about it in here in the hall the other day when I was teaching, and I want to go over some of that again because, um, you know, the, that place of old wounds um, is often where the heart and mind are most contracted. And so it's a place where it's very hard to have kindness and goodwill if there's some old stuff that you're still carrying around and upset with various people. So it's really important, again, to say that it's not about pretending that something did not happen. It's the forgive and forget is probably one of the least useful teachings that we have on this planet. It's not a good one at all. So it's not about forgetting. And it's not quick. You know, when we work with forgiveness, sometimes it can take years and years and years before you come to a place of being able to open your heart. Because that's what it is, isn't it? It's about learning to open the heart, to let someone else back in. And as I said in the hall a few days ago, you know, it may be that you don't ever, and you shouldn't ever, let this person be anywhere near close to you. You know, there are people that you cannot let into your physical space. It would be dangerous. But this does not mean you have to keep them out of your heart. And that's a very interesting place. Henri Nouwen <clears throat> says this. He says, Forgiveness is the name of love practiced among people who love poorly. The hard truth is that all of us love poorly. We need to forgive and be forgiven every day, every hour, unceasingly. That is the great work of love among the fellowship of the weak that is the human family. Each of us has been injured, some of us really horribly, and each of us has caused harm to other beings. We all have all the behaviors in ourselves, you know, all the light and all the shadow. We have the potential for all of that. And when we begin to see this, as we often do in a retreat like this, the judgment and the criticism of others can begin to subside and the heart can open. You know, we, we can, in fact, remember fully and acknowledge fully and then open the heart. There's a reading from Desmond Tutu that <clears throat> it's a little bit long, but I think it's worth sharing. He says, I think back to my time as chair of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa. A hearing that will forever be imprinted on my memory was an investigation into the shooting of unarmed demonstrators by members of the armed forces. The hall in which the hearing took place was packed to the rafters with a crowd who were justifiably angry. The tension was palpable. Four soldiers entered and their commanding officer admitted delivering the d instruction to open fire. He turned to the crowd and asked, please forgive me. The crowd then did something that none of us could have predicted. They broke into wild applause. When the applause subsided, I turned to my fellow members of the commission and said, let us be quiet because we are in the presence of something truly holy. Forgiveness is never easy or cheap. 
It isn't something you can demand of others. Forgiveness is a deeply personal journey to reconnect with the whole of humanity around you and therefore to reconnect with yourself. It is essential because it reveals how we are inextricably bound to each other. As I have said before, there is no future without forgiveness. So these trainings that we're doing, the training of metta, of kindness and goodwill, this sort of subset of metta that is forgiveness, this is creating new pathways in the mind. And the mind more easily flows toward kindness. And today, in in one of my interviews, I remembered a story that I've always loved about uh, metta. And it's from their very early days when we were just starting to do metta as well as vipassana. And Sharon Salzberg, whose book many of you have probably read about uh, metta practice, was one of the leaders in that movement. And so she was sitting one of her first retreats um, and practicing metta. And she just started the retreat, and she was in the period of practice where she was doing mostly metta for herself, lots of metta for herself. She was a little skeptical, you know. She didn't, wasn't sure how this was going to work, but she was doing it. And then something happened outside the retreat in her family, I believe, and she had to leave the retreat for a while. So, you know, she was kind of running, rushing around, getting packed up and ready to leave. And she was at IMS in one of the old bathrooms that has all tile, you know, lots of tile on the walls and on the floor. And she dropped a jar of something, a glass jar on the floor, and it shattered into smithereens. And the first thought that came into her mind was, may I be peaceful? And in that moment, she was utterly surprised because that would not have been her usual reaction to dropping a jar on the floor was in that moment she began to realize that something was really happening. And it does. It does. I think of metta as sort of the umbrella of the Brahma-viharas, you know, that karuna and working with compassion and being able to be present with pain and difficulty is, is a flavor of metta. And and mudita, the practice of being with uh, happiness, is another. And equanimity is kind of like the foundation. We need that. And they all need each other. They all work together. So it's really great that we can do them all. Uh, metta without equanimity can fall into its near enemy of attachment. And equanimity without metta and compassion can become kind of dry and indifferent. It's kind of like that. You know, they, they all work together. So there's a couple of things that I want to add tonight. I want to add, talk a little bit about the value of a sense of humor. And I want to talk a little bit about gratitude, which often in many conversations I've had with other teachers, we say, you know, there, there should be a fifth Brahma-vihara. We should have a Brahma-vihara of gratitude. I, you know, I don't think you can do deep spiritual practice without a sense of humor. I think we'd just probably curl up and die someplace if, if we didn't have that, you know. We just need to be able to kind of sit back, and not in a mean way, but just to be able to laugh at ourselves a bit, to not take ourselves quite so seriously, and to see how 
often, in fact, were probably a little bit ridiculous. You know, it's a little like, for me, I was thinking, it's a little like walking, watching a child learn how to walk, you know, and they wobble and they fall down and, and they're so awkward and they are so utterly adorable. And, you know, I think that's actually one of the great pleasures of doing interviews with all of you. You actually are kind of utterly adorable. <laughs> and, and, you know, and you're very, very sweet. And, and we all kind of hang in there together with, with our struggles and trying to wake up. And, you know, the sense of gratitude is that place where we can sometimes begin to take so many of our difficulties and turn them into practice. Because, you know, why not? If you, if you have a multiple hindrance attack, you know, when the mind won't sit still, you're filled with anger and fear, there's all kinds of things going on, you could actually be grateful. You know, it's great. You're being informed where you're not finished yet. And you see where you have work to do. And you wouldn't want to be cruising along thinking that you were well on your way to enlightenment when you weren't. So it's actually <laughs> useful to, to, to be able to see these things. In recent years, very recent years, the last two or three years, I've been working with a number of the slogan, slogans from the Tibetan Lojong practice and using the translation that um, our friend Norman Fisher has created. And... Um, you know, these, this particular translation has lots of humor and lots of kindness in the slogans. And one of my favorites, which I wanted to bring to you tonight as part of this talk, always makes me laugh. So there's the humor. And I think it's hugely useful. And it says this, Do good. That's easy. Avoid evil. Here's the kicker. Appreciate your lunacy. And pray for help. <laughs> So, you know, here at the retreat, doing good and avoiding evil are probably, for most of us, pretty easy. We're, we've all taken precepts. Some of you are taking eight precepts. And you're not, you know, you're not in your everyday life. We're not doing too much at all, and we aren't talking a lot. But appreciating your lunacy seems to me like one of the better instructions of goodwill and kindness and friendliness towards ourselves. Because our minds are so amazing. I mean, can you trust your mind? You know, it's undoubtedly produced more than a few strange thoughts during this retreat. I've sometimes, when I've been on retreat, I'll keep, I'll, if I have a, uh, an idea about something that's important, I think it's important, I have to remember this for the end of the retreat, I'll jot it down so it won't loop through my mind endlessly. When I go back to that list at the end of the retreat, <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> what was I thinking, you know? How, how could this possibly be important? And Jack Cornfield again, used to say to us on retreats, he would say, you know, the mind has no shame. The mind has no shame. It will tell you anything, and it will spiral out into the most amazing stories. One year at IMS, I, was, I had a room <clears throat> down in the basement section. I don't even know if they put people down there anymore. Probably not. And, um, and there was this sound on the other side of the wall. Ka-thump, ka-thump, ka-thump. 
So, you know, I, the retreat there, I was there for, I think, for a month that time. And um, <laughs> after a while, I thought, there's something really wrong. There's really something wrong. And I got really scared, and I got really anxious, and I'd go to bed at night, and I'd listen to the kathump, kathump. And one night, I went raging through the hallways, trying to find a manager or a staff person, you know, help, help, what's wrong? Something's really wrong. You know, I, I found out later it was a special kind of pump that was doing something very good. Once I knew it was very good, I could relax. But, you know, it was such an amazing story. And, um, you know, we've all done things like that. You've had these little bouts with what's sometimes called yogi mind. And, you know, sometimes we create a story about someone else. We fall in love with someone that you've never even heard them talk. You know, all you know is they've got cool socks or something like that. <laughs> Or, or you hate them for the same reason, you know, you don't like their socks. And, and the ability to stand, stand back and go, this mind, it's so crazy, you know? And when we do that, then we're less likely to act on the story. We just kind of sit back with a bit of humor and go, oh yeah. One year, again at Barry, I did have a Vipassana, a Vipassana romance. I, uh, this, there was this guy, I sh- was sure that he was somebody really amazing. I think it was because he and I both drank coffee. And <laughs> so, you know. And so finally, because I'm also trying to be a good meditation student, I realized I had to tell my teacher I was having this, this romance. And uh, the interview that I had next was with Joseph. I threw out the person who was sitting in on interviews because I was too embarrassed to tell the story in front of them. I was really, just thought I should have a bag over my head. And I went in there and I said, I'm having a Vipassana romance. And Joseph, bless his heart, got this big smile on his face and he settled back in his chair and he said, oh good, now you're going to learn all about desire. It was the best response that I could have had, you know, and he just took that crazy mind and said, oh, okay, let's work with it. So when we do this, you know, when we appreciate our lunacy, it can lead to a kind and friendly approach to our scared and anxious selves, you know, and I can say, there goes, there goes that Mary Grace personality. She's anxious, she's grumpy, you know, she's worried, whatever. And when I meet it with kindness and appreciation, then that whole piece can kind of relax, just like a child does when you finally, you know, pick them up and hold them and say, oh, you know, poor boo-boo, you know, it's all right. <clears throat> and when we do that, then the mind is way less likely to lead us into unskillful action and way more likely to lead us into good ones. Do good, avoid evil, appreciate your lunacy, and pray for help. So one of the most skillful ways to do metta practice, one of the things I love to do, is to take a time at the beginning of your practice and to remember the kindnesses of our benefactors, the kindness coming towards us. Sometimes I I create a big group of them, kind of like a family picture at a reunion, you know, and I've got Jack Cornfield, and I've got Ajahn Amaro, and Ajahn Sumedho, and Joseph Goldstein, and Sharon Salzberg, and the Dalai Lama himself, and my 
best beloved yoga teacher and now my hula teacher in Hawaii and my husband because he's one of my better teachers. There they all are. They're waving at me, you know, in the picture kind of. And I can just feel all this love coming to me from them. And they're, they're there, you know, and they shower me with their kindness. Why not ask them for help? Why not get it that they are there to help me? It's a little tricky. We don't pray much in the Buddhist world. You know, we don't talk about prayer. But it is really important to know that we're not alone. And it's important to ask for help when we need it. And of course, it's important to, act, to accept it when it comes. You know, I've always loved that story about uh, the person who was caught in a flood. And so he said, well, you know, as he got higher and higher and higher on the roof of his house, I will pray and God will help me. And after a while, a rowboat came along and said, you know, get in, I'll take you, take you to land. The person said, no, no, you know, I'm praying to God, God will help me. And then a helicopter came by and lowered a ladder, no, no, you know, I'm waiting, God will help me. And then the Coast Guard came in their big boat, no, I'm waiting for God. And of course, the water got higher and higher, and finally he drowned. And so there he is, you know, and he's meeting God, and he's like, what? Why didn't you help me, you know? I prayed, and I thought you would help me. And God said, of course, I sent you a rowboat, and I sent you a helicopter, and I sent you the Coast Guard. What more do you want? So in our world, who do we ask? Who do we ask? I asked Ajahn Amaro that once, and he said, there are so many beings out there. Just ask. You know, who knows what will happen? I think the asking, actually, is one of the most important parts of asking for help, praying for help. We don't know what's out there. We don't know how the cosmos works. It's very, very big. It's very, very big. And it's very mysterious. And sometimes even just remembering that is, can be helpful. You know, that we are part of a much, much bigger process. So one other of the slogans that I think is really useful and very helpful with metta practice is, whatever you meet is the path. Whatever you meet is the path. Whatever. Alternatively, another way to say it is each being that you meet is enlightened but one. And you know who that is. So you can think about that when you look around the dining room next. You know, they're all enlightened and they're all doing what they're doing to help you wake up. So working with these kinds of practices, it's all part of it. There's nothing that is excluded from practice. There's nothing. Then it's not a problem. It becomes our practice. And then gratitude can come in again. We turn into the skid, as I mentioned the other night. And we're not in contention with what is. It isn't wrong that this is happening on your retreat. As Winnie said in her talk, every moment has equal valence. It's all part of the practice. We're kind of doing... It's a kind of Aikido that we're doing with life, you know? Moving each event into a moment of awakening by meeting each event with kindness and with interest, with friendliness and goodwill. One last poem. Because maybe as we meet it with friendliness and goodwill, we also can meet it with a bit of surprise. This is from John O'Donohoe. He says, I would love to live like a river flows, 
carried by the surprise of its own unfolding. I would love to live like a river flows, carried by the surprise of its own unfolding. So, dear ones, stay just where you are, and let's breathe together for a moment. And in this moment of breathing, send just a little bit of friendliness and goodwill toward yourself, wherever you are in your practice. And then, in a very simple way, radiate it out around the room to all of us and to all beings. May all beings be happy and peaceful and free. So thank you very much for listening and may you enjoy your evening of practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.